This episode brought to you by Audible, your audio book source with over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. And today you can receive a free audiobook and 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com slash richtakeonsports. So don't wait. That's audibletrial.com slash richtakeonsports for your free audiobook and 30-day free trial. Listen to your audiobook anywhere, anytime. Taking sports to another level. Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Exploring the latest headlines and going behind the scenes with in-depth interviews. Hearing personal stories and the impact of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. What time is it? This is episode 44. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever format that might be. And thanks for being in an investor by investing your time to listen. Now, the way we consume sports, as we all know, has significantly changed over the years. And so has the role of the sports information director on college campuses all across the nation. And in this episode, our guest, he's lived through many of those changes, and that's Tim Beret, who's currently serving as the Assistant Athletic Director, Football Communications at Clemson University, where he's been a mainstay within the Athletic Communication Department or the Sports Information Department for over 40 years. After receiving his undergraduate and master's degree from Notre Dame, Tim got his first job at Clemson and has been there ever since. And he was just recently elected into the College Sports Information Directors Association Hall of Fame, so his reputation reaches far beyond Clemson, where he's also known for having this unique ability of uncovering obscure stats. And many Clemson faithful have come to love these stats and revel in their obscurity, so much so that someone has created an actual fake Twitter account, and its title is called Fake Tim Beret. And there you'll find even more entertaining stats. So when Tim and I talked, I had to ask him how he felt about having someone create a fake Twitter account in his honor. Well, it was kind of funny. It would, uh, the, I still don't know who does it, although the person who, who does it did uh, message me to ask if it was okay to do this, and I, uh, I, uh, you know, got a kick out of. It. I said sure, because uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it's it's interesting, you know. Most of the stuff he has is good. Uh, I'd say he. I, I don't know if it's a he or she, but uh, anyway, uh, most of the stuff that uh, he uh, comes up with or or. or are pretty good and accurate and 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 right there. But it was funny the way it worked out. The launch of it, or people discovered it uh, on a. Uh, I think it was it was either a Monday or a Tuesday when we were in the middle of the season and we were doing interviews with uh, the players. And uh, so all of a sudden, it's like all the media saw it at the same time, and they all started chuckling and. And um, I think it was Grace Rayner of the Charleston paper said, oh, Tim Beret, you've made it. You've got a fake Twitter account. And I said, what? <laughs> and so then I found it, and everybody got a big uh, big kick out of it. So that's what uh, that's what started it. I think it had 1,000 followers the first, uh, the first day. So I, th- I thought that was, uh, that was pretty good. But, yeah, it, it, is, it has been uh, uh, fun. I've been doing Twitter 
three or four years, and it is a perfect uh, platform for me to just, you know, throw some uh, interesting stats out there, and it's uh, people have um, enjoyed it. I get a lot of positive comments from it, and um, it's a really good way to disseminate the uh, the information. I actually have a lot of national media people that that follow me, and uh, and so it's a good way to to uh, get information out to people quickly about the uh, the Clemson Tigers. So, well, you've obviously created something with these stats. So how did that come about that you started focusing on these stats? And in all reality, Tim, some of them are obscure, but they are meaningful, though. Yeah, you try to uh, you try to uh, come up with some things that will uh, you know certainly promote either student athletes or uh, or your team, your your program. You're always looking for things about uh, you know most of the stuff I do is with football. I do a lot of stuff with other sports too, but just coming up with um, statistics that help in uh, in, in promoting your uh, promoting your guys. Uh, you know, um, Tony Elliott. Uh, won the uh, Broyles Award, and I think if there's one stat that helped him was the the fact that um, uh, we had to replace 77% of our of the of the players who accounted for 77% of the total offense for the 2016 season, uh, and that was the 128th out of 130 schools in Division One and and. One of the schools that was below us was UAB, and they didn't have a team in in 2016. So um, I think that, then that we were that successful. We ranked number one and averaged 35 points a game and 450 yards. Having to replace that much, I think uh, that had a, a positive bearing on on Tony getting the uh, the Brawls Award. So that's kind of a, an example of the things you uh, you try to uh, hunt the stats to help. Um, you know, promote your, uh, you know, promote your team. That's right. And so, part of your job really is promoting your players uh, or the team's players and the coaching staff as well. Yeah, right. It, yeah, <laughs> really, it's the team in general. So, you know, we look at the team accomplishments and um, and then uh, the uh, the individual uh, players. For instance, you know, the fact that we won. Three games over uh, uh, top 15 teams in the month of September. Well, ESPN actually researched and came up with the, uh, the fact that that had never been done before in the history of college football. Uh, and then uh, we had another stat that uh, uh, we were the first team in 10 years to win road games against uh, four teams that had at least eight wins at the end of the uh, at the end of the regular season. So, you know, I think, you know, facts like that are, uh, you know, kind of make your team stand out. And, uh, I'm, you know, I'm sure the committee has uh, access to all these different different things. And uh, But I think it certainly has uh, helped our ranking and getting in the playoff and all that kind of stuff. So now do you have a team of individuals that help you do this research or is this all on your own? Well, I have some students that will help me do do uh, do some things. Um, Billy Roy is as uh, one of them. He's a senior, and uh, his father's actually the producer for golf on uh, uh, for NBC Sports, and so he's he's pretty uh, well wired into uh, into into that type of thing. But um, you know, most of the other students are involved in the social media aspect of it, and they do graphics and things with the stuff that we work on and uh, and, and come up with. 
um, it, it's it's not as important to know things off the top of your head. What's important is to know where to find them, is to uh, is to know what's out there, uh, know the different websites that have some of the information that can help you. Uh, and it's also uh, also the, really the start of it is knowing what questions to ask. Ask yourself, uh, you know, when's the last time something has happened or, you know, has, has anybody else ever? <laughs> you ask yourself that a lot along the same lines of, has anybody else ever uh, beaten four teams with at least uh, eight wins on the road in a, in, in a season? And then you have to know where to try to find it. So are those questions that you're coming up with yourself and are you taking dedicated time each day to think about something to ask like that? Yeah, that's kind of how it how it works. Sometimes the questions, though, come up from other people, something I might see on Twitter or something. A member of the media might ask a question. Um, so it can come from different uh, different sources. But the main thing is to is to. Uh, you know, know the questions to ask yourself, and you know sometimes I just do that when I'm driving home at night, or I'm sitting at home at night, or uh, or obviously in the office too. I got all kind of record books and things that I can look through and uh, can uh, spark something. Well, and I imagine the internet has obviously helped you be able to research and find information. Yeah, it really has. There's a lot of things that are out there that uh, that people have done. There's a when it comes to like the uh, AP polls, there's a site. Uh, collegepollarchive.com and then as far as statistics in college football the, the best one is uh, cfbstats.com I use those a lot I mean people may want you know I always will talk about hey Hunter Renfro's the sixth of the nation in receptions on third down well, I didn't go through every play by play of every player in the nation to do that it's already done on this, on this computerized uh, uh, website you just need to know where to find it now, before you got into all of these stats and finding all this information, there had to be a starting point for you because you're <laughs> right. You're you're getting into you know your what fortieth season finishing. i yeah, really finishing my fortieth. Okay, yeah, he's got a month to go. So that's yeah. crazy, Tim. So you're finishing your fortieth year at Clemson. So yep. where did your love of sports begin? Well, it actually goes back to when I was a little kid. Um, and uh, really kind of came from my father. My father didn't play a lot of sports, but um, uh, my dad went to Notre Dame, and I really kind of got it from from uh, from him. My overall love of sports probably came from my grandfather, but my father cultivated it through his love of Notre Dame. And when I when I was from the time I was eight years old, we would sit at the kitchen table, and in those days, you know, games were. Uh, you get a couple of games a year on television. There actually was a rule that you could only be on three times in a in a year on the ABC um, broadcast. So most of the games we would sit at the kitchen table and listen to the games on the radio in in Connecticut. Notre Dame did have a national radio um, package, and so he kind of told me how to how to keep the stats, and so I'd keep the rushing and the passing and the receiving. Stats, and then I had this little uh, eight uh, eight and a half by eleven piece of paper, which I kind of drew lines and kept track of how the ball was going up the field, just uh, listening to it off the radio. That's how kind how it all started, and I did that um, really through high school, 
and then um, and then of course then I went to Notre Dame and um, my first two years I was just a regular student I went to all the games and everything but and then uh, my father um, had a chance meeting with the sports information director at Notre Dame Roger Valdeseri in the summer of 1975 and uh, Roger told him about what he did and and my dad thought boy my son would really be interested in that so I wrote Roger a letter and he hired me as a volunteer and uh, in the fall of 1975, and I've been working in the sports information office since. I, I presume then that the sports information career was not really something that was on your radar initially. No, it, it, it wasn't. I, for, you know, for whatever reason, I don't know who did the stats or how it came about. I should have known because um, in 1968, you, uh, uh, Roger Valdeseri was the sports information director, and he's 92 years old today and still going strong. And uh, he actually, uh, you could subscribe to Notre Dame's press release. You get at the beginning of the season, send them whatever it was, and they would run it off and send it to you. So I used to get the release, but when I went to school, I guess I just never put two and two together that students actually could work um, in the office. So, um, uh, but uh, yeah, in the summers of 73 and 74, I worked for, uh, I had a summer job working for a brokerage firm in Connecticut, Fonstock and Company. And that's what I planned to do. I mean, it was, it was numbers, it was stats with, with all the stocks and everything. And um, I actually, you know, helped consummated um, purchases for the different uh uh, clients for the for the brokerage firm those uh, summers and I kind of liked it so that's kind of what I planned to do was to go work for a brokerage firm after I just go back to Connecticut and uh, and work there but then once I started uh, working in sports information that's that's what I wanted to do so what was it about sports then at that time that drew you even more so that you wanted to pursue a career uh, well probably a lot of it was because Notre Dame was so good in everything and, and <laughs> football and basketball my last year. Uh, you know, won the national championship in football and won the and went got to the final four in basketball. Uh, up until that time, I think it only been done one other time in in college sports history. So, um, and I got to let meet a lot of national um, uh, media people when I worked in the sports information office at, at Notre Dame. So that and it was a real positive experience. I, I really enjoyed the people that I worked with, um, the students and the full time people and. Uh, it was just a good experience for me. So when I graduated undergrad, then I went back and got my master's. And uh, so then the big question was, did I dislike Notre Dame sports information or did I like sports information in general? Did I want to do this for some school that I didn't know anything about? And uh, and so um, in August of 78, I, you know, I was applying for jobs because I was getting my master's then. And um, and so I applied for this job at Clemson and uh, got offered it. And, um, you know, after a year, I determined that, yeah, I like sports enough that I'll uh, work at someplace other than Notre Dame. And, and so 40 years later, here I am. Well, and one of the people that you talked about developing a relationship at Notre Dame before you, you know, moved on to Clemson, and that's Coach Digger Phelps, uh, the head men's basketball coach at Notre Dame. So how did you guys develop such a tight bond? Because you've written two of his books now. Uh, yeah, well, I've actually worked on three books with him. We did uh, Basketball for Dummies, um, which we've done actually three um, versions of. The first one came out in 1990, 
seven. Uh, and then I did a book on his uh, career at Notre Dame and, and as a coach. And then I re- recently published uh, this past or this year uh, a book on Father uh, a book on Father Hesburgh. And well, I just kind of got to know him when I worked in sports information. I really loved basketball. I used to run the bookstore basketball tournament at uh, at Notre Dame, and um, you know Digger was just such a charismatic uh, coach then, and beat all his number one, beat seven number one ranked teams in his career. And uh, I was there as a freshman when Notre Dame ended UCLA's 88 game winning streak, and then got to go with him to the final four. So um, I got to know him when I was a student, and then. We didn't keep in touch that much for the first 10 or 15 years when I uh, was down here. But then when he started working for ESPN, he uh, he, he got a few assignments uh, down here. And he did an NC State-Clemson game in the 1995-96 season. We went to dinner uh, and uh, spent a good bit of time together. And then when he was at the Final Four that year, he was approached – about doing basketball for dummies, and um, so he called me to ask me if I wanted to be involved uh, with him on the project. So that's how we kind of started the uh, the book writing, and uh, and so yeah, we've we've been writing books together, I guess, for twenty years when you think about it. That's right. But uh, no, he was uh, he he was uh, he kind of represents the spirit of Notre Dame to me, and he's just been a terrific friend. So speaking of that Notre Dame spirit, was it difficult then to leave Notre Dame to come to Clemson? Well, uh, I didn't have a choice because they didn't have a job for me. <laughs> so if I wanted to, uh, if I wanted to work, uh, I, I kind of needed to do that. And uh, it was either that or, or uh, sweep the floor in the convocation center, I guess. So I, uh, I, uh, but no, I, I got off of the job. And, you know, Clemson. I didn't know that much about Clemson other than, believe it or not, I really knew more about Tree Rollins that I did about Clemson um, football, following basketball like I did. And and in, when I was a senior in college, that was Tree Rollins' senior year, and Clemson had a good season, so I kind of knew about Tree Rollins. And and, uh, and, I, and and obviously I had come to Clemson. Uh, uh, God works in mysterious ways. And so Clemson played at uh, – Notre Dame played at Clemson for the first time ever in the fall of 1977. And I usually didn't make road trips that long. I would go on road games when they were driving distance from Notre Dame. But uh, the uh, assistant SID at the time, Bob Best, who actually went on to uh, be the PR director for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and then uh, ran all the Super Bowl halftimes for like 20 years, well, he couldn't make the trip for some reason. So Roger said, asked me if I could go. So... I got to make that trip with the uh, with the Notre Dame team, and it kind of gave me a free chance to see what Clemson was all about, the spirit of the school, how uh, how much the fans were into football, and uh, and, and and so that was uh, that worked out great for me. And what was your first impressions of Clemson? Seeing a football game, them running down the hill. How did you take that all in? Yeah, I'd heard about running down the hill. I used to watch the. Uh, Remember Bill Fleming used to have a college football show on Sunday mornings on ABC, and whenever they did a package about a Clemson game, they always started it running down the hill. So I knew they ran down the hill and and uh, and all that. But uh, uh, I do uh, I have vivid memories of that 
uh, first game in uh, November 1977. So the game was a one o'clock game. It was not on live television. The only television was the Notre Dame replay network with Lindsey Nelson and uh, Paul Horning. I don't know that Paul did that game that day. I think he was somewhere else. But anyway, so we the bus got there at 11 o'clock for the for the one o'clock game, and when we drove the bus up, we could see through to the hill on the other side, and the hill was packed two hours before the game with with students. And Roger Valdesari was sitting next to me on the bus. And he he leaned over and he said to me, "What are we doing here?" Meaning, <laughs> meaning, oh boy, we're going to get ambushed. And at the time, of course, Notre Dame was ranked fifth in the country with Joe Montana, and uh, you know was in the hunt for the for the national championship, which Notre Dame eventually did win. But that was a very close uh, game. But it was a, a terrific atmosphere that that day, and. Uh, so you could tell that Clemson really cared about football. So speaking of that game, I have heard rumors, and I don't know if it's folklore or what it is, uh, in reference to Joe Montana with the comeback and the the win for Notre Dame, and that he did a victory lap around the field after the game. Is that accurate? I got to be honest with you, I don't remember that. Okay. I did not remember that. No. Yeah, I, I've heard the story of him doing the victory lap, holding up his finger, you know, number one uh, after Notre Dame wins. But I questioned if it was actually accurate. Yeah, I do remember the way you can see the video. If you go on YouTube, you can see a video of the game where they uh, they have loaded the video of the C.D. Chesley uh, replay of it. And after the game, you can see most of the Notre Dame players. You know, I remember Ken McAfee, number 81, certainly doing it and you know that you know Notre Dame was not ranked number one at the time but certainly had a chance to be and so was in the in the uh, hunt for it but I don't remember any Notre Dame player running around the field yeah now when you got to Clemson your role as at that point sports information you handled all sports correct not like today you're really focusing on football and golf but back then it was the whole university athletics. Yeah, when I first uh, started, well, from you know, for many, most of the time I've been here, it's uh, uh, the first uh, the first uh, year or two it was just uh, me and Bob Bradley, and uh, and we you know had to, and, and women's sports had just uh, gotten going, and so um, but yeah, that was uh, as I look back, I don't know how we had time to get it. everything done because that first year in the fall of 1978 Clemson was really good in football ended up 11 and 1 and 6 in the in the nation and we had Steve Fuller we were promoting him for the Heisman Trophy and uh so yeah we we didn't have I mean but you couldn't do as much as you did did today I mean uh you know the, to do the football stats in 1978 I just had to sit down an electric typewriter and type them up and took a lot more time than today when you just punch a button and the computer's spit them out for you. So, yeah, to just get a couple of pages of of uh, notes uh, and the stats was all there was to the uh, to the release. And, you know, you were still in there all day on, on Sunday. So, yeah, you can do a lot more. So now how has your role changed over the years? Spanning a 40-year career, Tim, how has it changed? Yeah, when I first started, uh, I was actually, uh, I mean, I went to the football games and helped out at football games. But uh, my main thing was... Uh, basketball with coach bill foster and i you know i had to oversee you know all the other sports too and so you know we did little press guides and things on the other 
sports, and we had uh, a student staff that would, you know, write stories about their results. Or somebody would go cover the soccer match and come back and write a story and and, and keep the uh, keep the statistics. We had uh, six six or seven student assistants there that first couple of years, and then. Um, and then we got to add, a, add an assistant, uh, Kim Kelly, uh, actually had worked with me at Notre Dame as a student. And so we hired her and expanded the staff for the um, 80-81 academic year. So that uh, certainly helped out a lot. But yeah, we had to cover, we had to, you know, I went to a lot of women's basketball games and soccer matches and uh, and tennis matches. I used to go to the NCAA tennis tournament every year down in Athens, Georgia with with Sam Blackman in the 1980s and took Creasy at a terrific, uh, terrific program. We actually won the ACC championship eight out of nine years in that, uh, eight out of 10 years in that, uh, that decade. So yeah, it was kind of busy. You, you couldn't, uh, you really didn't have time to do, to go in depth like we did today. Um, today, the biggest change, obviously social media is almost like there's two arms now to a sports information office. You've got the social media where you really are kind of promoting your own, I mean, you're doing your own promotion, your own publicity. Uh, and then you have the arm where you kind of deal with the outside media, which is kind of what I do. How did you embrace social media? Were you receptive to the change with social media or did it take you a while to really embrace it? Well, no, I was receptive to it and I'll tell you why. Because all those years that I was in charge of everything in the late 70s, or really, well, of course, Mr. Bradley was until 1989. But from 1989 until about, oh, 2010, in there somewhere, you know, you, you, you had all these uh, sport coaches and other sports that they wanted to get stuff about their program in the Greenville News, the Anderson Independent, Columbia State, whatever. Uh, and it was always a battle, you know, because the newspapers, they also had to cover Furman and Wofford and South Carolina. And so there was just a constant coaches, you know, calling you up and say, well, we didn't get such and such in the paper this morning, you know. Well, social media, the advent of that, uh, now when you when you started having your own website, a coach could go and see, well, there's a nice article about my program on uh, ClemsonTigers.com, and then when you could start doing things on Twitter, uh, all that kind of satisfied the coaches that they were getting the word out on their program. So they never, they didn't complain that much more, uh, more any about getting in the, uh, in, you know, in the local uh, local paper because they could see it, they could send it to recruits, send links to stories to recruits uh, that were on your own website. Yeah, so obviously much more instant access to content that you could promote from that standpoint. Correct, correct. Now, you also uh, wearing so many different hats in, in terms of your job responsibilities and roles at Clemson. So how did it come about that you started doing color commentary for basketball? Uh, well, it started in uh, the first time I ever did some game. I actually did a couple of games when I was a student. Uh, traveling with the basketball team at, at Notre Dame, I did a couple games with Sam Smith my um, senior senior year, and actually did a couple games with uh, Tom Denon and um, some other people. And so, um, my first year, when we played uh, Ohio State in the Gator Bowl, we were playing in the Sun Bowl basketball tournament in El Paso the same weekend, the same night, and so. Um, I was going to go with the basketball team because that was my uh, 
my priority. And Jerry Arp had been doing the color on basketball, but he was going to go with the football team to the Ohio State game in the uh, in the Gator Bowl. So they asked me if I wanted to fill in for him, and I said, "Sure, that would be that would be fun." So I did both of those games with Jim Phillips in El Paso, and uh, so those are the only two games I did my first year, and then my second year, Jerry had left to go to Texas A and M. And so they figured since I was traveling anyway uh, with basketball, why couldn't I just sit there and do the color for road games? So in 79-80, I did road games. And, of course, we had a great year. We went to the Elite Eight of the NCAA tournament. And so then the following year, they, uh, which was the 80-81 season, they said, well, why don't you just do all the games? And so I said, uh, if you can get somebody to you know, to be responsible for anything that happens during the games at home uh, that would be great i love love doing it so that's kind of how it that's kind of how it all started now did you ever think about doing color commentary as you're exploring your sports information career yes and that really started when i was at, at notre dame when i was at notre dame we uh, you would keep uh, a typed play-by-play of the basketball games so when i worked in sports information there I thought, well, if we really want to be accurate and to put everything in the play-by-play, especially the end of a close game, why don't I uh, talk it into a tape recorder as to what happens, and then if we miss something, we can go back and listen to the to the tape recorder to to type it in. So that thought kind of just turned into me. So I was doing play-by-play of the game. So I basically sat there with a tape recorder next to a guy with a typewriter. And uh, I still have some recordings of those, uh, believe it or not. And um, so that's that's how that kind of uh, started. I would actually, for Notre Dame home basketball games in the 70s, I would kind of talk into a tape recorder. Have you gone back and listened to any of those recordings? Yeah, I've got one I need to, to dig out because one of my old friends, Ray Martin, who's uh, been an assistant coach in college basketball for a long time, I'd happened to do it. Uh, the night we were playing Indiana his uh, senior year, and he actually, um, that was the last game he ever played because he broke his ankle and he couldn't play the rest of the uh, season. So I've been, so I actually described that if I wanted to look that up and send it to him. That's great. Now, I know you've done a little bit of football as well, uh, color commentary. So which is harder, basketball or football? I can't say that either one is harder than the other. I did the color from 82 through 88, for football, and um, then when Mr. Bradley retired, that, that was kind of tough to run the press box and be on the radio uh, at the same time. Although I've done a few games here in the last uh, three years when Rodney Williams couldn't be there, and I did do the uh, the Saturday after Jim Phillips passed away, I did do the play-by-play of the Middle Tennessee State game. Uh, the Phillips family asked me to do that do that game which i was honored to uh to do now that's football play-by-play that that's how i remember at the end of that i was kind of tired because boy you really got to learn that um play-by-play is for football is tougher just because you got 44 numbers you really got to know maybe not as much the offensive lineman but you really got to know the the numbers so um and, the, and obviously the names that correspond with the numbers so Basketball, you've only got five guys in the court at the at the same time. So, uh, so I guess football is a little bit harder to do. But football, you have more preparation time. 
uh, than you do for basketball. And so at one time you had a chance to leave Clemson uh, to take an SID position at Pittsburgh. So was that the only opportunity that you had pursued or were you uh, approached for other opportunities that you were seriously thinking about? Yeah, that was the most serious. Actually, it accepted that job. And as people say, I pulled the Bobby Crimmins because I accepted it on July the 5th, 1983. And then July the 10th, I told them I wasn't I wasn't coming. In uh, 2005, I had a chance to go back to, uh, to Notre Dame as the football um, SID, but I um, just decided to, to stay. I was really close to Coach Bowden, and, um, and so I decided to, uh, to stay then. So those are probably the closest. Uh, so what has kept you at Clemson then for 40 years? Well, it's a lot of good people to work for. It's a great place to live. And, you know, this will sound a little bit strange, but Clemson has kind of become what Notre Dame used to be when I was in school in the 70s. I just see a lot of um, similarities. Uh, I mean, obviously, notwithstanding the success of the Clemson's football program right now, it kind of parallels where Clemson, where Notre Dame football was in the uh, in the 70s. But there's just a uh, you know a good family aspect here and uh and once you've been in a place for a long time you make a lot of strong friendships and I've had a lot of great students who have worked for me for uh for uh, for a long time and that all adds to it and just also the ease of doing the job having been here so long that when something historical comes up I know it off the top of my head where if I was in another school I'd have to uh do a lot of research to get the question answered or or finish all the weekly releases that I, that I do for football and other sports. Yes. Now, I know you'd mentioned routine, and it's a little bit easier because you're so familiar with it. But what I see is like one of your challenges in your role is how do you balance the aspect of allowing media access, but also protecting the privacy of the coaches and staff and the players? Yeah, it becomes a little bit uh, um tougher, especially with the way things are with the volume of media, the volume of social media that we have uh, that we have today. So you do have to have a few more rules and, and, and a little bit stricter guidelines than, than you used to have. Uh, you know, I remember when I started in the 70s, uh, or a lot of times if somebody wanted to talk to a if a writer wanted to talk to a football player, he'd call you up and say, "Yeah, here's his number. Give him a buzz." <laughs> that was all there was to it. Now we, of course, have set times when the because there's so many. Um, you know, in 1981, we won the national championship. We would do a Tuesday press conference with Coach Ford, and we would have two players up at the Clemson house, and that was pretty much it. And and you know, there was a sit sit down luncheon type thing but i just don't remember having to set up a lot of interviews with players but now you know it has to be a lot more organized and have to have kind of set times and it's it's a lot more convenient for everybody like kelly bryant he comes every week at twelve forty-five on mondays to do his interviews and if you want to talk to kelly bryant that's the time you come and that's really the only day in the week that he's available unless there's something special that comes from ESPN or Sports Illustrated or somebody somebody like that. But that's kind of how we do it with the, with the guys. And the media knows to come on Mondays and Tuesdays and to plan three hours that they're going to be available to, to get different players during that 
during that window. And I can imagine just from an aspect of Coach Sweeney, just his popularity and where the program is going, it just creates even more challenges. So you really have to be organized, as you mentioned. Well, yeah, the problem you get with Coach uh, Coach Sweeney is that, you know, everybody wants a one-on-one. I mean, I got a stack of uh, interview requests from radio stations from all over the place right now that you know, and, and and what they what we've done now with the recruiting having an early signing period is just a real killer because that really takes away from his his time. But uh, yeah, his requests are uh, off the charts. I can imagine. So looking back now, forty years at Clemson, who's the best athlete that you've seen at Clemson? If you can even drill it down to one, the best athlete. Um, I'd say the best athlete who also was probably one of my favorite athletes would have to be C.J. Spiller, um, football from 2006 to 2009. Um, I'm a little bit prejudiced because he was so easy to work with and uh, he, you know, he, he, he knew what it was. He got it, as they say. You know, I remember there was one, he used to do his interviews on Tuesdays and it was, there was one time that he got a flat tire and you know couldn't make his appointed time and he called me on his cell phone to tell me that that he couldn't make it that day and could we reschedule it for another time and there's a lot of players that just if they got a flat tire the last thing they would have been to think of would have been to call me and uh, and tell me they weren't going to uh make it but yeah he was a phenomenal player he was really a guy that Every time you touched the ball, you kind of held your breath. And, you know, what's he going to do next? Is he going to make an 80-yard run or, or whatever? No doubt about it. I think he was somewhat of the genesis of Clemson going to another level in, in terms of... Yeah, you're of, right. I think that if, if C.J. Spiller hadn't done the things he did, I, I wonder if Deshaun Watson would have come here. I agree 100%, Tim. Uh, I think it was a domino effect based on uh, C.J. Spiller coming here. Yeah. I think so, too. So now, if you can sum it up, Tim, what has sports meant to you and the life lessons that you've learned being in sports, not necessarily as a player, per se, but you've been behind the scenes in sports. And so how has it impacted your life? Yeah, it's had a big, uh, big impact on my life. And when I think of the hours that I've, you know, put in over the last uh, 40 years, but I've uh, just gotten so many great friendships and and just the spirit and the camaraderie that you see being a part of a team while I'm not, um, you know, obviously playing the game, but uh, I still feel a part of the team just as if you were a a coach uh, or or whatever. And and that has been, you know, very meaningful uh, for me, very enjoyable. I love the games themselves, but uh, the people that you uh, create long-term relationships with. I'm still in touch with a lot of the coaches I've worked with at uh, Clemson over the years who are now retired. Uh, obviously, we talked about Digger Phelps and, and um, you know, how long I've known him. So, uh, you know, that's that's the part of it uh, that'll be, uh, that's been terrific. For sure. And could you have ever imagined starting out your career after you're writing that letter to the sports information director at Notre Dame as a student to volunteer, basically, that one day you're getting elected into the Sports Information Hall of Fame. Yeah, no, you're uh, you're right. You know, and it's one thing about that letter that I'm glad that I did um, is in the letter I actually said that um, I would be coming to summer school the following uh, summer 
and that I'd be willing to uh, to work in that in that summer. And I and I said that I would. I just wanted the experience and uh, willing to work for for free. And so I really got that job because Roger Velasquez actually wrote on the top of the letter. Uh, when he recommended that I be hired to the assistant, Bob Best said, "Sounds like a good summer slave. <laughs> Let's hire this guy." <laughs> so it was because I told him I'd be there for the summer that where they they decided to hire me. So um, thank God I put that in the letter. Oh, that is too fantastic! Uh, is any by chance do you have that letter? I assume it's still in some file up at Notre Dame uh, because he, because afterwards, you know, when I was finishing up grad school, I, I did uh, find that letter again. So, uh, yeah, that was something. So, when you were elected into the Hall of Fame, you had to miss the trip to meet the president with the Clemson football team to celebrate the national championship. So, how how did you feel about that? You you are honored in such a great way for your career, but then you missed that opportunity. Yeah, no, that that was an easy decision for me because uh, I'd already had a lot of uh, uh, people that I'd worked with that were gonna that were gonna uh, come. Some of them uh, there were four. I think there were four uh, from my first student assistant staff in 1978 at Clemson that were that were coming, and uh, just we're gonna be a lot of old friends there. So it was. Uh, it was a no, no-brainer. I mean, I would have loved to go on with the team of the White House. That would have been a nice, a nice day. But you know, you only get inducted in the Hall of Fame uh, once, so uh, yeah, I wasn't going to miss that. Well, it's well deserved, and not just based on the longevity of the career. It's what you've been able to put into it, and what you have meant for all of Clemson athletics, without a doubt, uh, Tim. And as we finish up here. You've been around a lot of coaches and heard a lot of different, you know, quotes, phrases, slogans, whatever it might be, especially with Coach Sweeney these days. But what are some words of wisdom or advice that has meant a lot to you that you would like to share? Well, the best bit of advice I ever got was not from a coach. It was from Roger Valdeseri, the sports information director at Notre Dame. And, and he uh, always told me that when I got into sports information, align yourself with a school don't align yourself with a coach or somebody that you work with meaning you know the schools and the athletic department as a whole is going to be there long after somebody uh moves on to another school you don't want to get in the point where you're you know traveling just following a coach and there were been there been some sids who have you know traveled from one school to another but uh I've liked the fact that I've been here at Clemson for 40 years. I've worked with a lot of different coaches and people, but uh, the school is always going to be here, so and the athletic department is going to be here. So I'm glad I followed that, that path. I'm still amazed that Tim's been at Clemson for over 40 years. You know, this is such a rarity these days to see someone stay at a place working for that long, especially in today's society where, as we all know, everything seems to be moving so fast. It's all about instant gratification and the focus on upward mobility as fast as possible, even if that means changing jobs, changing locations, whatever it is. But obviously, 
This is something that he loves doing, and he's found his purpose in life. And he's also found the place for him to fulfill that purpose, and that's at Clemson. Now, I remember my days as a manager for the men's basketball team at Clemson under head coach Cliff Ellis and how I used to have to harass Tim's staff for stats during halftime to give to the coaches. And just thinking back to how things were done back then, to how they're done now, where information is at the tip of your fingertips. And it's amazing that Tim has been able to evolve over the years, but it's obvious that his ability to do that and evolve just reinforces why so many people believe he's one of the best at what he does. And I expect you'll see him at Clemson for many more years to come. Now that finishes episode 44, and remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening. 